From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. Yes, and a very warm welcome to the first Latopia After Dark of 2008. And I'd like to, to wish everyone who's listening a very happy new year. Um, we're making a little bit of history here. Um, we make, I think we tend to make history every week, actually. We're making technical history because we're actually streaming this particular podcast live on Ustream at the moment. And um, if you go to the website www.litopia.com slash podcast, you will find um, full information on how to not just hear but also see um, live podcasts as they happen. Um, now, why should you want to do that? Well, the simple reason is partly it's, it's fun, but also on Ustream there's a chat function um, which we're monitoring at the moment. And that means that you can ask questions or make comments as the podcast progresses. And um, anything that's um, vaguely sensible will get incorporated into the broadcast. What could be better than that? Anyway, um, let's get on with the first podcast of 2008, and I'd like to introduce our participants. Um, the world is slowly waking up to the new year. Publishing is, in, is, is, is very sort of quiet at the moment, actually. I'm the only person who seems to be working 110%. Um, so we've got a, a small, intimate podcast tonight for you um, with three guests, um, two which are British, actually, which is uh, rather unusual. It kind of restores the balance a little bit. Our first guest, though, is from the Venice of America. You can hear it laughing away there already. Um, she's writer and leading lawyer Donna Ballman. And now Donna has finished, I think just before Christmas, um, her latest book, which uh, keeps changing its title. And the last one I had was Let's Quill the Lawyers, A Writer's <laughs> Guide to the Courtroom. But it's going to be published in 2008, and I suspect before, um, sorry, December 2008, and I suspect before that it may undergo one or two more title changes. And she's currently working on several young adult writing projects as well. Happy New Year, New Year Donna. What's the latest book title? Well, Happy New Year, Peter. Uh, the latest title is The Writer's Guide to the Courtroom, Let's Quill All the Lawyers. Okay. And that's not me. That's my publisher doing that. Right. But I, I have I happen, happen to agree with the decision. I think it's yeah. a better marketing title. I think that's right, actually. I think that um, it's it's turned it's you know you've turned the writer's guide to the courtroom round to the main title rather than the subtitle, and that's actually a lot clearer, it's isn't it? I do like the Shakespearean reference, though. Let's call the lawyers. I think that's rather educated. Right? Also, working on a novel for the young adult market. Actually, everyone tonight is either is, is working on something that's had just something published for the young adult market. Maybe we should theme things on that. Um, is Dave Bartram, who's one of our stalwart regulars. Um, Dave Lecture's in fact just complaining about being called a stalwart. No, Dave Le- Award anything, really. <laughs> yeah, it is it is it does sound rather <laughs> rude, doesn't it? Uh, Dave Lecture's in fine art and he comes from England's West Country. Dave, what are your New Year resolutions? Any any you care to share with us? Uh, well I want to sort out the wart on my stall, obviously. Um, <laughs> that's been bothering me for a little while now, and I really must get that sorted out. Uh, resolutions, mm, yes. Get my act together. I think is it's, it's the one I have every year, and I yeah. 
I like to keep it, so I don't like to fulfil it because otherwise I'd have to think of a new one. Yeah. So you know, endlessly. But hopefully this year I might actually do it. That'd be nice. This will be the year. Um, and also uh, from the UK, we have novelist, journalist, actress, and broadcaster. <laughs> Amanda Lees, who's going to put us all to shame in terms of presentational skills, I'm sure. Amanda's written for the London's Evening Standard, which is our uh, local evening newspaper here at The Times, New Woman, Cosmopolitan and Company. And she's published two non-fiction titles before she wrote her first children's title, Kumari, that's K-U-M-A-R-I, Goddess of Gotham. And I happen to know that she's just putting the finishing touches to her second novel in the Kumari series, and you can find out about that at her website www.amandalees.com Hello Amanda, what are your resolutions? Uh, to take less pressure from my agent, that was quite a beginning thank you um, yes, well I've been working 120% Peter all oh, yeah. Christmas. Yes, yes, I have. Well, we've all had um, this disease, actually, in, in England, <laughs> haven't we? Yes, yes, we've all been dying. So my yeah. resolution is um, uh, to take it, ooh, just a little bit harder this year. A bit harder this year, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's no slacking. I think I think it is going to be a tough year in terms of publishing. Um, but, um, you know, whether we actually have a fully-fledged recession or not, nobody really knows. But if, if we do go into recession, um, it, it, in some ways it's going to be much tougher on writers, but I always think recessions do create opportunities as well. So there's not much happening in the publishing front. So um, I think this evening we're just going to sort of take it a little bit easier and, and really see what comes as far as the conversation is concerned. We do, however, have a very serious news item to start with, which is Chuck Norris sues, says his tears are no cancer cure. This is uh, from Reuters. Tough guy actor and martial arts expert Chuck Norris sued publishers Penguin um, on Friday, which was December the 21st, just before Christmas. It must have ruined someone's Christmas. Over a book he claims unfairly exploits his famous name based on a satirical internet website of mythical facts about him. I remember seeing this website two or three years ago and sort of half smiling. I didn't think it was enormously funny. Penguin published The Truth About Chuck Norris, 400 Facts About the World's Greatest Human. In November, author Ian Spector and two websites he runs to promote the book are also named in the suit. The book capitalises on mythical facts that have been circulating on the internet since 2005. The poke fun at Norris's tough guy image and superhuman abilities, the suit said. It includes such humorous facts as Chuck Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer. Too bad he has never cried. I think that's a joke. And Chuck Norris does not sleep. He waits. The suit said, as well as Chuck Norris can charge a cell phone by rubbing it against his beard. And this is what Mr. Norris's lawyers say. They say some of the facts in the book are racist, lewd, or portray Mr. Norris as engaged in illegal activities. So um, has Mr. Norris uh, suffered from a sense of humour failure here, or is he actually doing the same thing as uh, uh, another recent lawsuit we we discussed in Latopia? Um, after dark, which was, of course, the the famous Harry Potter one. So let's um let's toss it over. I don't know who we should ask first, really. Should we should we ask Donna to comment first because she is our expert? Really, Chuck Norris. Since when with his name even helps sell a book? I I can't get over that part of it. Yeah. Um, he he interestingly didn't go for defamation, and I think he probably read the Larry uh, the uh, not the Larry but the um, Hustler case uh, uh, with Jerry Falwell, um, and he just can't go for defamation. So now he's going for unfairly exploiting his name. I just don't see how he can prove that his name would sell even one book. <laughs> so. Sorry, Donna, you, let me just ask you to clarify that because that was quite an interesting case, wasn't it? The Jerry Falwell case. Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Well, Jerry Falwell, there was this truly disgusting cartoon depicting Jerry Falwell participating in some pretty disgusting stuff. But the court found that it was clearly a parody. And as such, it would never be defamation because no one would ever understand it to be truthful. So if it imputes acts that could reasonably attach to the person, then it, it's, it could be defamatory. But if nobody would ever understand that it was that person doing it, that it, everybody understands it's a joke, then it's not defamation. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like common sense to me, really. Uh, and in some ways, I'm surprised this lawsuit has been brought stateside. It's much more the sort of lawsuit you find uh, happening in the UK, which is sort of libel lawsuit um, capital of the world. Um, Amanda, Dave, what, what do we think about this? Amanda, what? <laughs> Amanda, <laughs> comma, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. That was <laughs> um, I I think because I'm going to <laughs> I'm going first, Dave. Um, yeah, please. It, I was after the comma. Yeah, I know. Just <laughs> hang back after that comma, please. Yeah. Um, I, I'm amazed that Vin Diesel and Mr. T haven't sued as well because I had a look at the website. <laughs> Um, and it's the original Chuck Norris fact generator, which is great because I've never heard of the guy. Um, Have you? Well, vaguely in Where the. Have you been? So clearly off planet Norris. Yeah. Um, and Vin Diesel is much more famous. I, I like his facts better, but I mean, I quite like. What well, fact number three? Chuck Norris once visited the Virgin Islands. They are now the islands. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> hello. <laughs> you know, Chuck Norris counted to infinity. Twice. It's just, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Chuck Norris can speak Braille. Chuck Norris does not speak. <laughs> he waits. I mean, it's, it's pathetic. He, uh, yeah, he, he needs to get a sense of humour. Or he needs to come over here, you know. Yeah, he, he needs to come over here and he'll, he'll, get, he'll get a lot more damages over here, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. What but, do you think, Dave? Yeah, come on, Dave. Come on. Well, thank you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I prefer a semicolon myself. Um, oh. Yeah, it's... Um, I've found a Chuck Norris facts website here, and there there are two things that strike me. One, there is one here that's actually quite funny, which is um, Chuck Norris destroyed the periodic table because he only recognises the element of surprise. <laughs> that's intelligent. <laughs> I, thought that, I thought that was quite intellectual. But <laughs> beyond that, the interesting thing is there's a list of ones he's he has picked himself. So there's a, there's a bit of hypocrisy in here, in that if he's prepared to select ones that he likes, and then he is actually upset about the ones he doesn't like. Yeah. You know, the ones he doesn't like are the one about not sleeping, or this one relates to us, obviously. Chuck Norris doesn't read books. He stares them down until he gets the information he wants. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the way you tell them, Dave, really, that it brings them to life. I do my best. I do my best. Uh, and Chuck Norris can lead a horse to water and make it drink. You know, that's great, too. And so he's, he's selecting the ones that he likes. So presumably if the book was full of the ones he liked yeah. and he was getting the money, yeah. he wouldn't have a problem. Yeah, but there is, there is an, a kind of issue, isn't there, really? There's a sort of semi-issue. I mean, I don't know about racist lewd and so on, but um, the issue is sort of controlling your name, isn't it? Especially if your name is a brand name. I, I don't know if you guys have seen the other Chuck Norris news. Uh, we in the States have been confronted with Norris standing behind this guy Huckabee who's running for president too and it's night after night and he's campaigning with this guy so 
I think it's odd that the two things happened at the same time. He's actually out and there. so yeah, I'm wondering. He's campaigning, is he? is, yeah, he's he's campaigning. His wife is campaigning. There's been a lot of stuff about how good looking his. Yeah, we we just we just lost that, Donna. We we lost the first part of the sentence. Do you, oh. want, do you want to just redo it? Oh, I, I was going to say that uh, I think that nobody's really heard of Chuck Norris anymore, and so I wonder if the whole thing is some really odd PR stunt. So, well, I think that just proves that Chuck can get to you anywhere, actually, Donna. I think you should be careful. <laughs> I think, look, look, looking at the pictures on the website here, if he's standing behind this guy, he's probably got a gun in his bag. So, I, you know, I'd be careful if I was this Huckabee guy. You know, he's, he's silly, reckons himself. He's obviously got something there. No, Every I think he's really this- sensitive. He sounds really <laughs> sensitive. And that's why he's upset. I think we should cut the guy a, a little bit of slack. Don't you think, Donna? Well, uh, since he can knock out my podcast, Mike, I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what happened. That's quite spooky. All right, enough, enough Chuck Norris. In fact, too much Chuck Norris already. This is, this is kind of the only sort of um, serious item that we've, we've got, actually. And it's, um, it is quite serious. And it's an issue that um, I think authors are particularly starting to... Well, I know some authors are actually starting to complain about quite a lot. And it's, um, it's about books in the landfill and um, all the waste that the publishing industry generates, which is, in some ways, it's, it's rather a, um, a, a dirty secret. Um, returns in the publishing industry. In the UK, it's estimated that about half, this is very scary, half of all books printed in the UK are never read. They're not redistributed either, but they return to publishers or otherwise disposed of and usually pulped or just chucked away into a landfill. Same sort of thing happens in the magazine and industry too. Writing the Times Higher Education Supplement, um, environmental scientist and author David Ray wrote, what with production and transport, the average paperback has eaten its way through 4.5 kilowatt hours of energy by the time it gets to a reader. In terms of climate impact, that's equivalent to about 3 kilograms of carbon dioxide emissions for every glossy new textbook. So for a print run of 10,000 copies, there's a cost of 30 tonnes of carbon dioxide not mentioned on the dust jackets. But this is a best-case scenario. The sale or return system virtually guarantees that the damage is much more severe. If half the books delivered to bookshops then have to be tracked back to the publisher and pulped, there's yet another great belch of greenhouse gases to ultimately heat up the cheeks of both publisher and author. And they say just in the UK, publishing in effect puts an extra 100,000 cars on the road, um, which is uh, a bit scary. So, you know, we all bear some responsibility for this. How do we feel about it? Interesting. I mean, I've been doing my bit by steadfastly not publishing for 10 years. That's I very, think that's that's very an... green. <laughs> well I've, done, been doing, I've been doing my best. I'm, I I'm feel I might have to give in soon and actually... Try. <laughs> it's getting, it's getting, getting a bit close now. It's a bit dangerous. Yeah. Well, I think we, we all appreciate that gesture, Dave. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm glad you do. Well, um, um, Amanda, I mean, you, you, you've you been published a number of times now. Is, is this, uh, is this a, a, an issue on your agenda? Absolutely. And I, I particularly admire publishers like Egmont, who've been pretty green for uh, quite a while now. Yeah. And I, I think I read on Greenpeace's website that um, Random House have set up new publishing systems which will make them greener as well but i think the the main issue goes back to returns and why we still have such an inefficient ordering system you know if we could uh, and it also this this expands to the record industry to cds you know we have this ridiculous situation where we we kind of stock our shops on a sale or return basis um yeah it's very nice of us but it just puts all the power in the retailer's hands totally Particularly, you know, at, at a time when retailing is going to come under a big squeeze, perhaps it's time to think for, for more than just the green issues, although they are extremely important, that we need to we need to stream we need to order intelligently and stock our shops intelligently. 
Yeah, and I, I obviously packed them out with my books. <laughs> well, that, that's a very good point, actually. I mean, I, I know a number of authors are insisting that, um, um, that their books are printed on recycled paper, but even that doesn't, um, you know, does, doesn't affect the situation as, as you've described, that retailers do insist on sale or return. The big ones have enormous power over the publishers, and, you know, they can say, well, we'll have 10,000 copies. If they only sell 500, they're going to be returning 9,500, uh, with which something has to be done. Any views on this, Donna? Well, what I also think publishers and agents can do better is a green submission process. Right now, my uh, proposal just went to uh, an agent with a very green submission policy, but it's amazing how many still require tree slaughter. And worse, Mm. many require a return envelope and look down on writers who say to recycle. What, really, would I do with a used synopsis or manuscript? It's ridiculous ridiculous to even try to do that so why not allow either e-submissions or at least recycle absolutely that's that's a really good point and you know as far as i'm aware no one's ever uh, mentioned that in, in agency circles before i always feel guilty actually when, when i get you know i mean we get enormous amounts of unsolicited submissions still i always feel very guilty we get 500 page manuscript um without any um accompanying postage usually and after the first couple of pages, you know it's dreadful. You, you know you've got no interest in it. What are you going to do with the rest of it? Well, I, I think you've, you've raised a good point there because it's, it's hard to really read a submission without printing it out, to be perfectly honest. It's hard to read on screen, isn't it? And, you, you know, if, until the point where we develop some kind of reader, and we'll not talk about Kindle too much. No, I think I've done that to death in the last... I think last you've done that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think we've got to... We've got to sort of weigh up, you know, perhaps do people need to send you 500 pages? Yeah, well, they obviously think they do. Uh, yeah. I mean, what, what I'll do, if I, if, I, if I, you know, what I prefer to do, and I, you're, you're dead right, you see, and I, w- I wish this wasn't true, but what I find I'm doing is I'll, I'll look at um, a Word document, and if it passes what I call the SOFA test, then I, I will print out significant portions of it because I cannot read on screen as well as I can read sitting down on my sofa with a bit of paper in front of me. And I wish I could, but I can't. I mean, it's like my, my instincts wake up when I've got a, a wadge of paper in front of me and I can start to make notes on it and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, I can't edit. I can't, you know, redraft a book without having to work with a printed manuscript. I need to do what you do. I need to look at it. I need to make notes. I, t- I need to see the printed page. And it's an inescapable part, I think, of the process. All we can do is be as green as possible. I always use recycled paper. Um, when I get to that point, I'm sure I'm going to insist my books are printed on recycled paper. Well, even if you need to print out stuff that you like, you could have e-submissions because you're going to know within the first few pages whether it's something you want to read further or not. So if you want to print it, great. E-submissions just makes a huge amount of sense. Um, in my law office, I get probably 100 emails a day from potential clients, and I can look at it very quickly and respond very quickly to them, either getting more information or telling them they don't have a case. I would think it's very much the same with agents. Shona Modra, who's in our, our chat room at the moment and listening uh, obviously very carefully to, to what we're saying, says, I shudder the thought of an agent or publisher asking for a full and requiring it to be hard copy. But the flip side is e-submissions and the danger of viruses or attachments. Perhaps the smaller publishers simply don't want, want to bother with protecting themselves from internet attacks. And that's very true. That's, you know, that's always a costly part of any enterprise. Let's, um, let's, let's move on to our, our next topic. And anyone who's um, a regular listener to the three types of Litopia podcasts that we, we're now developing, one of which is Litopia After Dark, one of which is Litopia Storytime, and one of which is the Litopia Writers Podcast, will know from listening to 
um, the the main magazine uh, podcast, which is the Lutopia Writers Podcast, that Donna is a frequent visitor to writers' conferences where she takes her, her trusty recorder, buttonholes some very fine interviewees, and gets them to, to tell everything. And a lot of people have benefited from listening to um, her interviews um, in, in recent months. Now, Donna... Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about writers' conferences, about the tricks of, of going and the wrinkles and so on, and who to see and how you, you try to arrange. But before doing that, I'll just tell you, writers' conferences may be familiar to um, US listeners, but in the UK, we, we don't have them. So could you just start out by explaining exactly what they are? Well, there's a, a, di- a, a number of different types of writers' conferences. There's the genre conferences, and that's the first one I went to, um, SCBWI, which is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators has conferences worldwide. I think they have something in Frankfurt. I don't know if they have anything in London, but um, they're fabulous to go to because you get to hone in on experts in your genre. Hmm. Um, and then there's general conferences. Um, I've been to the National Writers Workshop here in Miami, and some of those are on the podcast, some of the people I interviewed, and some of them are upcoming. And there's something that anybody can attend, which is the Maui Writers Workshop, even if you can't get to Maui, has their um, stuff online. So you can listen to their presentations online. So th- that's really an opportunity for everybody. And then the third type of thing really is the workshops. That's also something that people can do online. Um, Media Bistro and um, Writer's Digest, Writer's Online Workshops has online writing workshops and they can be from an hour of just listening to something to months of uh, working through a manuscript. I'm uh, working on a YA novel workshop that's starting it's going to be for 12 weeks and the idea is to write an entire novel in 12 weeks Uh, we'll Mm -hmm. we'll get to see how how that is that should be busy but um so there's a lot of different types of of these things and there's a lot of opportunities for people all over the world to really learn okay so um i mean the the thing that will appeal to most um would-be uh published authors will be the idea and tell me if this is being naive because i honestly don't know because i've never been to one either um, the idea of going along, um, meeting your dream editor, meeting your dream agent and coming away with a deal. Now, is, is that in, in any uh, way likely? Well, I think that um, actually a lot of writers meet um, editors or agents in the conferences, but there's ways to do it and there's ways not to do it. Um, Not all of them have formal pitch sessions, but um, I think it's uh, Writer's Digest that sends an e-newsletter and they'll actually tell you which um, conferences are coming up that have formal pitch sessions more opportunities to meet with agents. Um, SCBWI doesn't do pitch sessions, they do critiques, but some of them are done by agents and publishers. Um, So there are opportunities, and and my favorite is coming up in September, and I haven't decided whether I'm going or not, but it's it's got a a hilariously named thing called Speed Dating for Agents. (laughs) Oh, it sounds very dangerous. And there's an... (laughs) There's an equivalent speed dating for editors, and the idea is that they've got like 20-some agents, and they give their bios, and they each do a little presentation about what they're looking for, and the writers go to the session. You, you, I think it's $50 to go into the session, and you have three minutes. You line up, and and they, uh, you pitch to these agents or editors in the order that you're in line, and you can get as many as you want. Um, 
I think it, it sounds like a hoot to me. Uh, it, and so it, it sounds like a, a big opportunity. But there are some that actually have longer formal pitch sessions and things. And that's probably your better opportunity. That's what, um, what you don't want to be doing. And, and I think Peter may agree with me, although if you don't have writers conferences in, in the UK, maybe uh, you haven't experienced this. But I, one of the things that they usually do is give a little etiquette session at the, be- the beginning of these things because you don't want to do things like hand your manuscript to the editors or agents. You don't want to interrupt conversations to start pitching. Um, many don't want you to pitch at all except in formal pitch sessions or critiques. Um, I've heard stories of agents and editors having proposals shoved under their hotel room doors um, or being stalked by people. So you don't want to do that. What you want to do is um, some conferences, SCBWI last year gave some uh, what I call get out of the slush pile free stickers. You Stickers that you can put on a submission and they the writer or the, the agent or edit, editor will actually tell you what they're looking for and how to submit and this kind of gets you out of the slush pile wow. and they'll actually look at it. That's terrific. And so I I'd say use those for sure in your submissions. And if you, even if they don't have the stickers, mention the conference in the submission. Say you saw them yeah. because that, that gives you a leg up and at least gets their attention. That's amazing. Um, and you can certainly... You can certainly chat with them. There's lots of opportunities. There's conferences that have um, cocktails and dinners and stuff. So by all means, chat with agents and editors, get to know. But the main purpose of these things, I got to tell you, is not to meet your editor or agent of your dreams. It's to learn about writing. So it's a great opportunity to network with with other writers, um, to uh, really get informed about whatever you're interested in in writing and, and learn. Yeah. Now, um, I stand corrected because at uh, the Type Writers Colony, we have a brand new podcast officer whose name is Ruby Tuesday. Um, and um, she's um, patiently listening. She's not taking part at the moment. Maybe she, she would like to take part at some point. Um, but she is listening to what we've just been saying. She's typing away in the chat room as we talk. And this is what she says. I've attended iWrite, that's A-Y-E, iWrite, in Glasgow, where I was at an agent presentation. She handed out, and that's the agent, she handed out business cards at the end, and I now have the opportunity to submit to her with a covering letter mentioning our meeting. I think they can perhaps open a door previously closed. So that's quite interesting. I've never heard of iWrite, but um, uh, perhaps in the show notes we, we can reference that. So, um, Dave, um, what, what about these three-minute dating sessions? It sounds right up your street, really. Yeah, that, that was the bit that, that caught my attention, actually, because I, th- I think there's a great media opportunity here. Um, <laughs> You have this kind of, you know, this strictly come dancing show. Yeah. If you if you made the ballroom dancing that is. part, you, you've got to tell you've got to tell our American listeners what that is. It's celebrities and dance instructors competing to win a dance prize. But what you could do, you could make the dancers a gentleman's and a lady's excuse me. And after, so the, the prospective author would dance with the agent, and then another author would come up a minute later and tap them on the shoulder, and they could dance oh. and be judged on dancing whilst they're trying to pitch. <laughs> You know, a good foxtrot could get you a deal. I think it, it could go. It could. <laughs> I'm quite excited I'm by it. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I can just... Uh, how do you fancy speed dating, Peter? How would it... Uh, 
Um, well, my sort of British reserve says I can think of nothing worse, actually. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I just wouldn't, I can't see it working here. We, ju- we, we just couldn't do it. Well, you, know? you know, I mean, you say that, but there, there again, I mean, the elevator pitch is increasingly important in publishing. Because, you know, if you can't get it over in 30 seconds, then you ain't got much of a chance in, in, in many markets. So I can see the point. Um, but let me, I mean, you know, Don has had a lot of experience in, in public speaking and um, in the courtroom, cross-examining and so on and so forth. So she can obviously present herself well. But, and, and we know she can because we can, we can hear her right now. But I wonder really, because a lot of authors I know are actually quite shy retiring people. And that's perhaps maybe that's one of the reasons they choose to communicate through words rather than, you know, um, getting themselves out there and peddling their asses. And I, I just wonder whether pitch sessions are really the right medium for, for authors. I mean, does it not tend to be the noisiest people occupy most of the limelight, Donna? Well, I've never been to one, to tell you the truth, because I have a horrible dread of rejection. So I haven't put myself out there yet. Um, But I actually hear some pretty good results out there. When I've been interviewing writers, one of the things that I ask them is how they got their agent. Mm -hmm. And most of them are through some sort of personal connection. And I I hear from several writers recently, in fact, one of our Latopians just got an agent through a pitch session. Now, it wasn't a speed dating, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But those are good opportunities to at least get face-to-face so they can see you. And assuming you can um, not stumble and uh, not humiliate yourself, which I'm afraid I might do under that kind of pressure um, I, I think it's a good opportunity yeah, <laughs> hey, I took ballroom mm-hmm. dancing so I could probably do that but but I don't know I, don't, I, I might fold under the pressure or get a little speechless but I, um, it, it's probably worth trying for somebody who's out there trying to get an agent I think that but, the problem with British Reserve and, and the speed dating thing is if you think you talk about you know authors speaking through their books rather than in person it's generally considered or I've heard it considered bad form to start a book uh, with a description of the weather and being the British we always talk about so we'd spend the first three minutes talking about the weather and then it would be over and we'd never get anywhere Oh, that's <laughs> for yourself can I take you back to one point Donna though you, you said you pay $50 for this speed dating session am I correct I did. Well, I haven't signed up for it, but no, but yeah, no, that's but the price. You, there's the the conference session is has it. There's the the fee for the regular conference, and then okay. you pay. I think it's fifty dollars for the the speed uh, dating, and then um, I am participating in a critique session at the SCBWI conference, and I had to pay a small fee for that. Where that you submit ten pages of a manuscript, and and somebody in this case it's an author that's going to critique, um, and then the, this workshop also. Has a, a or this conference has a workshop associated with it, and you had to pay extra to participate in the workshop. That's a full day workshop. You see, I'm I'm slightly because having some experience, some long experience of the acting world, and I know in the states there are a lot of actors conferences and workshops as well, and there is room for exploitation here. I'm not saying at your conferences. There would be. But you know, fifty dollars a pitch, it's it's not an inconsiderable. Oh no, it's not per money. pitch. Oh, I it's mean, not per to, pitch. to participate it's for the no, whole no, session. Part, per participant. But who gets the money? I, I think the conference people do. Uh, for setting okay. it up, it's one of their expense set offs. I guess they have to rent the room and whatever. But the, the agents yeah. and, and editors are, are pretty well known. Uh, I, I got to say, they're very high quality. Is that uh, $50 per agent or is it $50 to pitch to no. as many as you want? As many as you want. Yeah, Heck, if you're flying it, it, to San Francisco, that's pretty cheap to to get a one-on-one with the 20 agents. Yeah. 
Sure, it's just that there's, you know, with, with people wanting to get published and to, and to break into writing, and there are so many people, you know, there's so many ways now that, that they can be made to maybe spend money. And again, I'm not criticizing these conferences, but it does slightly worry me that when people so passionately want something, they're ripe for exploitation. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think, Peter? Well, I was just going to bounce back to you, funnily enough, Amanda, because I know you've, you've lived and worked in the US and New York and obviously in the UK too, because yeah. you are British. And I was just going to ask you, actually, because part of this is, sort of, I think, cultural difference. I mean, what other cultural differences do you, do you find? Um, I, I think that... In America, in, not just in publishing, that they do have this, as Donna has amply illustrated, this, this sharper, more honed, more professional and slick approach, if you like. You know, where we bumbling Brits will kind of do it our way and we'll send our submission letters and we'll be terrified of making conversation. And Well, some of us. Um, Americans have organized this great structure where they can go and pitch to a whole bunch of agents. It's harder, I think, in America in many ways. I think that you have to be much more on the ball and much more on your toes, possibly because it's a bigger pool, you know, and that there can only be so many sharks in the pool and, and so many big fish. Well, I think that we do have different approaches, um, and I do think there's more competition here, um, mm. for sure. I think it makes it tougher for writers, and as you can see, there, Peter just said that there's a bunch of screenwriters sitting around writing children's book, books uh, just bored out of their skulls. Well, that's bad news for me because I'm trying to break into the children's market. Um, I think that we, we do have that. We Americans tend to be a little more forward and a little more brash and a little uh, more likely to uh, be, uh, well, just to say, I think a little more pushy. And I think that that folks in the UK tend to be a little more... um, it's it's a little different approach. Uh, I think well, ultimately I, I think, it has the same result. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I mean, the you know the scary thing, as far as I'm concerned, actually, is um, when I'm working in New York, my my personality changes hugely. Actually, I'll be, I'll be, really? Yeah. Oh yes, it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, very scary. Yeah, it's very scary. I mean, I, no, I mean, I think I think pushy is. I don't know. I mean, I, I find the New York uh, business environment generally much flatter. Um, than than London in terms of you, even if you're a complete stranger, you can usually get in to see the right person at a very high level as long as you've got something interesting to to offer them. Actually, in London, it's not like that so much as a question of who you know, who maybe you went to university with, and it's still a, a little bit of an old boys network, which can be quite frustrating, uh, and it's certainly sort of labyrinthine in, in terms of its um, uh, complexity. I do find it's, it's either feast or famine in, in New York. Uh, this is a little bit, um, it's, it, you know, this is one of, the, actually, I think one of the, the big differences between the two, that in the UK, there's always been this attitude that failure isn't quite so important, you know, and if you take a risk on somebody's book, and for one reason or another, it doesn't do that well, um, you know, the author doesn't have to change their name. Um, in, in New York, if you've got something that has been successful, it's got a good pedigree of success, or looks like it's going to be very successful, then you can really name your price. And that's why almost every week um, seven-figure deals are done in New York, because so many publishers are competing to get what they perceive to be very, very commercial projects. The flip side of that is that the cost of failure is, is very high. And you know, nobody in New York really wants to be associated with sort of a noble failure, a worthwhile book, but one that didn't do very well commercially. 
That's that's one of the big differences, I think. You know, I the find Americans it worrying. Just hate losers. That's all a bit harsh. I, I, I've still got this image of Amanda's prospective author on tiptoes on a ball in a swimming pool <laughs> um, with sharks trying to pitch. It's, <laughs> it's, mad, it's madness. Well, I, I think authors should do that. I think it would be very good for their psyche. Um, can I? I want to go back to the screenwriters writing kids' books. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just why would they think it's that easy? Oh, well, I'll just I'll, knock I'll out. I'll tell you why because every. Every publisher has been trying to persuade every author on their books to write a children's book because children's publishing is is one of the few areas in in um, in trade publishing that's that's pretty resilient, um, you know. And there is there is still very good money to be made there. And in many ways, I mean, you know, this this is perhaps a completely separate discussion. In many ways, I think adult trade publishing has kind of lost its way and its focus. And I think that there's a crisis of confidence going on in the heart of adult trade publishing. I suspect that many publishers no longer understand or feel uh, at a sort of gut level that, that books and publishing are an essential part of the culture. And that's why we see so many, you know, TV um, program, the book of the program, and uh, an obvious celebrity type books, but actually less and less in the way of genuinely innovative publishing. Um, and the children's front, that's not true. Children's publishers are, are there, they're making money after being ignored for decades and decades and decades. And I can remember when, you know, the, 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 the head of a big adult trade house actually wouldn't know the name of, of his counterpart in the children's division because the two would never talk to each other. Now, that's changed enormously now. Children's, in, in many companies, is the, is the biggest single um, profit centre. So every pub, I mean, and obviously, you know, we, we have got, I've done very well for the last few moments without mentioning um, J.K., but I'm going to have to. I mean, the thing that really turned all this around, of course, was J.K. Rowling. And she showed that it, it, you know, that it can be an incredibly um, profitable area. And since then, every publisher, of course, Bloomsbury is no exception, have been trying to find the next pot of gold. I was just, just going to say, because I've just been, I'm just reading uh, China Mieville's Un London which is his foray into the young adult market. Yeah. And, and it's a very, very good book. I think it's better than his adult um, work, personally. But uh, it occurred to me that, because it's a, it's a genre I'm quite interested in, the kind of the fantasy genre, and it, it occurred to me that the adult market for, in that particular genre is incredibly staid. They want, it seems the adult market wants certain things in a certain order, done in a certain way, with certain kinds of outcomes, whereas the children's market in that genre is wide open for new and imaginative and interesting and unexpected things. And it, it seems the whole uh, area of that genre for young adult and children's work is wide open for new ideas, whereas the adult side of it just wants rehashes of the same old stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chona says something very similar. She says children are one audience that's constantly being pushed to read. Only adults are free to watch TV and play video games without criticism. Ladies and gentlemen, um, we've come to just about the, the, the end of this first Latopia After Dark for 2008. Um, thank you very much, uh, participants, for helping us slowly ease our way into the new year and set our targets um, for publishing success this year. Um, I want to thank Amanda Lees for being our special guest. Thank you very much, Amanda. Thank you. I had no idea I was the special guest. Now I feel special. Well, I should have said that to begin with, shouldn't I? <laughs> so, yeah, the special Amanda Lees. Um, thank you very much, the special Dave Bartram, for being so special. Oh, comma. You're most welcome, comma. Absolutely. <laughs> Punctuate me, please, somebody. And the extra special, because I've left it to last, the extra, extra special Donna Borman. Thank you for taking part. And um, Donna, we, we look forward to your next report. 
from the next Writers' Conference. It's always a pleasure, Peter. All right, guys, have a happy new year, and we'll speak to you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Happy new year. Bye-bye. And now for the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers' Colony, www.litopia.com. If you've enjoyed it, please give us a good word of mouth and tell all your friends about us. Show notes and links referenced in this episode can be found at www.litopia.com slash podcast. If you're not already subscribing to the podcast through iTunes, and remember iTunes works both on the PC and the Mac, then we suggest you do so right now. You'll find it by far the easiest method of listening. Full instructions on the Latopia website. And if you do use iTunes, why not give us a review there too? Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you, and we'd be delighted to receive your thoughts, comments, views, and suggestions. There's a handy and easy-to-use comment form on the Latopia website itself, but also you can send us an email or you can even record your thoughts as an mp3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at latopia.com. This is Peter Cox thanking you for listening and looking forward to being back with you again soon.